Could the dream of self-driving trucks really still be decades away? Hi, I'm Jim Park, and this is HDT Talks Trucking, Season 3, Episode 1. Our guest on this episode created and ran Starsky Robotics, the first driverless truck venture to actually run a truck on a public highway with no humans on board. The company started back in 2015, and it closed its doors five years later in March of 2020. Starsky Robotics ran out of money when, as he put it, the downpour of investor interest turned into a drizzle. The problem for Starsky wasn't that it couldn't make autonomous trucks work. That was 99% of the challenge, and they succeeded there. The problem was the final 1%. As Forbes columnist Brad Templeton put it, it's not 1% harder, it's 10,000 times harder. This interview with Starsky Robotics founder and CEO Stefan Steltz-Oxmacher isn't a eulogy to a failed AI startup. It's a sobering look at some of the challenges that still remain today to making truly driverless trucks a reality. We'll learn more about those challenges right after this. Count on HDT to bring you the latest news on COVID-19 and lots of original reporting from our award-winning editorial team. Our coverage includes market reports, reader surveys, webinars, and more. Check out our COVID-19 Information Center links on truckinginfo.com. Stefan, welcome to HDT Talks Trucking. Uh, Before we get to the challenges we still face in making AI work in this environment, let me ask you, why do you think we need driverless trucks? So our view at Starsky Robotics was that the primary challenge in North American logistics is that it's really, really hard to get someone to spend a month at a time in a truck. So what we were building was a, was a piece of technology that let trucks drive without a person in them. And that was by making them remote control for the first and last mile and autonomous on the highway. And we went pretty far down that route. We actually, last June, became the first ever company to test a fully unmanned truck, so no person in the vehicle at all, on a public highway. But unfortunately, we weren't able to raise our next round of funding. And I've, I've been in the process of winding the company down for the last couple of months. That's a regrettable uh, conclusion to it all. Yeah, it is, especially because I'm more and more confident that our specific approach was right. And, and that, that approach is not just making those trucks remote control, but also by being the operator. And the, the reason why I'm so confident that, that is right is that modern robots are actually fairly bad. And it's, and it's really hard to make them work in all conditions. Whereas as the operator, we could have made them only need to work in the conditions that were easiest for the robotics to work in. In other words, pretty much straight down an interstate highway with uh, not too much exterior interference from side streets and shrubs and taxis and ladies pushing baby carriages. I'd say even more than that. I'd say, okay. so if a a typical truck moves about 450 miles per day, um, at 55, 65 miles an hour on average when they're on the highway, that means they're really only driving uh, six and a half to eight hours per day. If you have 24 hours in the day, uh, that that standard of service means that the early versions of these systems can be pulled over and waiting in rest in rest stops 10 to 15 hours a day to wait out conditions that robots don't like. And those conditions can be everything from high traffic to to rain to hail. All of those conditions are really really hard for robots to handle. And because of the nature of the trucking industry, are problems that we could have avoided 
um, at the time. But that was today in uh, like 2020. What about five years from now? Uh, would those problems have been worked out and uh, truly drivers, driverless trucks been uh, possible? So people have been working on this for 10 years and have spent at least $70 billion on it. So far, no one's worked out any of the problems. Zero? Wow, yeah, that's a lot of money. Billion dollars have, yeah. And so far, none of those folks have been able to so much as take the person or almost none of those folks have been able to so much as take the person out of the vehicle on a regular basis with a wide scale deployment. So whether that happens in five years, a year or 50 years is really hard to say. You know, that makes me feel pretty good as a former truck driver that it takes $70 billion to do what I used to be able to do practically in my sleep. Well, so what's interesting is, you know, you and I are really impressed by computers because computers can do stuff that we can't do. I'd, I'd be quite surprised if you could, off the top of your head, tell me what the square root of 827,904.6 is. I'd be very <laughs> surprised if you could chatter off an answer. Your phone can You're do that super easily. You're seeing the blue screen of death in my eyes. No, I couldn't possibly do that. <laughs> um, on the other hand, though, because computers are so much better than us at a number of tasks that we find incredibly hard, we assume that it follows that they'll be really good also at tasks that we find really easy. And the inverse is, is, is actually true. It's a really hard robotics problem to make an arm that can pick up, uh, pick up an object and, and hold it up. It's a really hard and mostly unsolved robotics problem to do something that we've been doing since we were toddlers, to, to walk. It turns out that, that humans are, are really good at exactly the type of things that robots are, are really bad at, and, and the opposite is also true, which is why so much money has been poured into doing something that, you know, frankly, every 16-year-old can do more or less uh, safely. Yeah, like steering the truck down the, down a straight road. Yep. Hmm. Um, one of the things that I could never get my head around, um, and maybe, you know, we'll, we'll come back to the computer side of this in just a minute because it's tied in here. Um, the technology seems to be available. There was yourself um, and several others that are still out there now trying to perfect this in a system that, to my eye, appears to work. And yet the industry... Uh, isn't operating these things on a regular basis. They're still in testing. Mm -hmm. why, why do you suppose that is? Why haven't we gone ahead with this uh, full steam ahead at this stage? Yeah, and I'd say this is another one of the big problems with, with robots today. The, you are not, you're not a dullard in thinking that these things seem to work. In fact, many of the, you know, many of the world's PhDs and, and, and smartest tech people in the world also think that these things seem to work. But just about every roboticist looks at these systems and knows exactly how little they actually work. Okay, so what's the difference there's between a, there's a my perception? There's a massive difference in robotics between being able to make something work once and being able to work 100 out of 100 times. Well, I think, I think if we were comparing performance from a human to a robot, um, mm -hmm. either way you look at it, the trucks would probably do a better job than most humans do right now. No, they would on a straight on a, on a straight sort of uh, non-complicated piece of highway. I'm thinking like Interstate 80 in in uh, Nevada. So, if you made a, a a track and that track had no traffic on it, 
and the truck just had to drive on that track for a thousand hours? Absolutely. You know, the person okay. loses every time. If you add in, you know, a mile of construction work here, people merging in and out there, um, it becomes a lot harder for the truck to be equivalent. And, and so far, there, there, so far, my company is the only company that has been so confident in the ability to drive on a straight piece of highway, uh, that they, that we were willing to take the person out. And that was just for a single test. The amount of additional work we would have had to do to drive on that specific set of road, that specific eight mile stretch, uh, all day long, every day, probably would have been another couple of years of work. Now, when you start to think about the stuff that happens between the off ramp and the distribution center, that is, that is a long ways away. There is, there is no one who is doing much that is very similar to that. Now, if it's again a specific road, if they can, if they can know exactly where every stoplight is, if they can know exactly where every turn is, exactly where uh, cars tend to uh, show up, now the robot has a fighting chance. But if the if the robot has to get off at one of 50 or 100 uh, uh, off ramps, then the whole problem becomes thousands of times harder. We have things like precision GPS now that can steer you know a vehicle mm-hmm. down the road to within inches from one side of it to another. Yep. Uh, are, are your trucks or trucks like yours equipped with that sort of technology or is it all quote unquote visual from the robot's point of view, LIDAR, so radar, that sort of thing? people who are using lots of different sensors. So high, high accuracy GPS, um, high definition maps, sensors that can tell you within a hundredths of a millimeter how, where you are based on where the stoplight is and where the stop sign is, if you've been there before. The, the real problem is all of the stuff that is not predictable, which is, which is human behavior, which is animal behavior, uh, all of that stuff is what's really, really hard for robots to do. The reason your calculator can tell you what the square root of that number I said earlier is, is because every time you type in that number and hit the square root sign, the answer is the same. When you're about to make a wide left turn on a road that is sometimes busy, and a car is approaching from far off, it is really hard to predict what that car is going to do. Are they going to slam on their brakes? Are they going to pull over? Are they going to speed up? Are they going to slow down and let you pass? Are they going to flash their brights their, their brights at you to let to tell you to go? It's really hard to predict that. And given that a a misdiagnosis it can can lead to a safety incident, it's really hard for teams to feel confident to deploy that type of system. Well, it's interesting you say that because. Back in the early days, that was one of the scenarios that I imagine would be among the most difficult to overcome, the left turn. Yep. You know, as humans, we risk, we take risks. You know, we'll look at the car approaching and we'll say, yeah, I can make it. And there's no pedestrians, you know, on the on the opposing lane where I'm turning, so I'll go for it. You yep. mash on the gas and away you go. Whereas these things, I presume, are programmed to be risk averse. So it could sit there forever as long as it perceived there was some risk involved in trying to cross that road with oncoming traffic out there. Out there. So it depends, of course, how it's, how it's programmed. The part of the problem is, part of the broader societal problem, is the, the truck driver, the human driver making that left turn doesn't always make the right decision. Correct. You know, there's there's 4,000 plus uh, truck fatalities per year. Some number of them uh, are because the truck driver judged the situations around them and they judged them inaccurately. You know, those, those situations were not what they expected, were impossible to expect, what, what have you. 
we're far less tolerant of machines causing accidental death than we are humans causing accidental death. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I and I, I don't think that that tolerance threshold being different is wrong. It's but it is a it makes for a, a remarkably different uh, situation to develop technology in. <laughs> and and to regulate and ensure because I'm sure in that scenario someone has to take responsibility for the decision the truck made. So the nice thing for us about being the operator is it solved that problem. So with us being the trucking fleet, it was pretty unambiguous that if we misjudged the situation, we would be held liable. And okay. while on one hand, that means we have more liability. On the other hand, if we were selling our robots to a fleet like, you know, Schneider or XBO or what have you, then that fleet's insurance company would fight a legal battle against our insurance company. At the end of the day, the costs would be far higher. Agreed. As the yeah. old adage goes, when lawyers get involved, the only people who win are the lawyers. <laughs> and they're always involved. Yep. Yeah, that would be a pretty complicated scenario, trying to sort that out. So I wasn't aware that the situation you were moving forward with was you are the fleet. You own the technology, yep. you do the trucking. So yeah, you're, you're liable no matter how you look at it. Yep, but, but, uh, but we're also in the most control. And the more control you have, the easier it is to limit liability. Yeah. Okay. In that piece you wrote in uh, medium.com a few weeks back, um, you talked about the AI learning curve and you, you referenced, there was a great chart on the, uh, in the story um, mm -hmm. where we want, you know, everybody to be safe. Uh, and there's certain levels, certain bars that everybody's trying to achieve. You describe those as L1, L2 and L3 uh, being mm -hmm. the sort of human, human driving capability where did you see or where were you hoping to see the, ro the uh, robotic trucks on that curve? Well, so as a point of, as a point of uh, clarification, and that chart, the charts elicited a lot of, uh, a lot of questions, uh, which means I need to edit it probably. Um, those, those three different lines were more in reference to where the curve of autonomy is than, than human equivalency, right? There is, a, there is some hypothetical line of where human equivalency is. If autonomous systems have already passed it, then good news, right? Where th that means the autonomous companies are just in the, in the, the stage of proving that they've passed it uh, so that they can go into wide-scale deployment. If, the, if that line is just a little bit further along that S-curve, it might be $2 billion more dollars. It might be $200 billion more dollars until we've actually pr proven, we've reached equivalence with a person. And yep. if that line is far above that S-curve, then, oh, crap, everyone might as well quit now and go work on something else. Because there's all the extra billions of dollars they, that are invested in this space are never going to meet human equivalence. No, I would presume at some point the regulators would look at that and say, how are we going to approve these things? Um, you know, if you're talking about some kind of performance criteria like we have now with uh, you know, brakes, for example, where mm -hmm. they establish a stopping distance, though the, the manufacturers know what they have to build in order to make the truck perform a certain way. Who's mm -hmm. going to set the bar for the safety, if that's the, the ultimate goal for these things, for these trucks to uh, one day somebody's going to flick a switch and say, okay, these are ready to go. Let's so have better. Who's going to do that? The autonomous industry has been one of the best examples of the 
the value of American federalism that I've ever seen. We're seeing okay. different states try out different regulations. And some of those regula regulatory frameworks are particularly burdensome and hard for autonomous providers to meet. Some of them are particularly laissez-faire. And we're seeing what actually works best in the moment. The, the reality is for a lot of those standards of, of breaks, before the, before the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration issues any, any real standards or regulations, a whole bunch of industry groups that are full of people who have the technical know-how to understand what is actually safe, uh, make standards and work on those standards together so that the industry comes to a consensus of what is generally a safe enough braking system or a safe enough uh, drive-by-wire system. And that happens well before it ever goes to the government bodies. I'd say right now in autonomy, the standards organizations haven't even quite wrapped their head around it. Most, most, uh, most of the autonomy industry is at loggerheads as to how to even measure the progress of an autonomous system, let alone go about proving that it's actually safe. Hmm. But the, the approach that we took at Starsky was that we, we cared a lot about what we called consecutive zero disengagement trips. So a zero disengagement trip was a, was a trip where from the beginning of the trip till the end of the trip, the safety driver, the person sitting behind the wheel, never had to do anything. And if we did a large number of those trips in a row or a large number of consecutive zero disengagement trips, we could make a pretty good bet, a pretty good statistical bet that on that next trip, we would not need a safety driver in the vehicle. Yeah. Okay. I, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, in an email you sent to me earlier, um, as we were getting ready to do this interview, you talked about it being a myth that the industry and the regulators wouldn't accept this. You've just made a pretty good case yeah. for getting them to accept it. Uh, what's, yep. what's wrong there? What's going on? So the, there are a number of states where it is already entirely legal for autonomous vehicle companies and autonomous truck companies to deploy systems on public roads without a person in the vehicle. What's been a thing that has been interesting and has particularly peeved me the last, the last uh, couple of years is that a lot of the autonomous folks blame regulators and say, oh, well, regulators are just never going to let this happen, so that's why we don't have autonomous cars. When in actuality, the reason we don't have autonomous cars is because the autonomous companies just aren't building something that works well enough yet. They've been passing the buck. Do you think the states that opened it up were doing it for sort of political purposes? They wanted to be seen as uh, cutting edge, leading sorts of states, or did they actually believe that this could be done? I think they believe that this, that this could be done. Okay. Because, because the autonomous industry and, and kind of everybody really believed it could be done. And I think part of that was wishful thinking. You know, if you, if you read autonomous, you know, articles about the autonomous industry in 2015 or 2014, you would have thought that every car would be fully self-driving by now. That was the pitch. Instead, yeah. Outside of a small suburb of Phoenix, there aren't any cars driving without people in them. <laughs> you know, I've often said, and I, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, uh, mm -hmm. but that the, the tech community dreams up solutions to problems that we don't really have yet and then sets out to solve them uh, when we don't even maybe want them solved. 
So is this whole autonomous uh, vehicle thing really just a pie in the sky right now, or is it actually going to happen one day? So I think it will actually happen. The I think we do want this solved. We don't want 40,000 people to die every year in automotive accidents. The right. whole world economy, and especially the U.S. economy, would be changed meaningfully for the better if there was no longer a structural driver shortage. Like, right now, it's far cheaper to ship goods from China to Los Angeles than it is to, to ship goods from, let's say, Ontario to Denver. That doesn't make sense. And autonomous trucks can change that. That being said, <clears throat> the, the technology just isn't quite there yet. Yet. I wonder what yet is. When are we going to see it? Could be decades, I guess, maybe. It could be years. It could be decades. Yep, that's what he said. Decades. I know there are many in the AI business who would dispute that claim, though. Coming up after the break, we'll learn more about Starsky's business model and how it might have solved the insurance liability problem. And we'll also find out if driverless trucks really can address the driver shortage. Don't go away. There's more going on in trucking today than just COVID-19. Stay on top of what's happening in trucking with HDT's award-winning news coverage and technical features. We offer webinars, market reports, reader surveys, and more. Stay on top of your game with truckinginfo.com. So we're back with Stefan Seltz-Oxmacher, and we're talking about autonomous trucks. Uh, Stefan, the trucking industry is sort of ambivalent on this, or, or bipolar maybe. Some really want them, some are dead set against them. Uh, when you were first approaching the industry, how did they respond to you with these ideas? So it's funny that you say that, and a lot of people, you're, you're in good company to think that the trucking industry would hate this. And, and there's, there's a long history of the trucking industry not being a quick adopter of technology or, or being ambivalent to Silicon Valley whiz kids with fancy coffees and expensive jeans. But that hasn't actually been the, the thing that I found. Um, earlier when we were talking, you mentioned that Silicon Valley often does a whole bunch of work to create things that we don't really want. A, a group that I was a part of, uh, Y Combinator, has this, this really strong insistence that if you're going to build a tech product, you need to spend a lot of your time talking to the customer. So when I started Starsky, obviously I was reading a lot about the trucking industry. I was diving in as deep as I could, but I also worked to make sure I talked to some truck drivers, some small fleet managers, some big trucking executives. And what I found was that while they are not the typical purchasers of software, while they're not the, the customers that most of my my tech entrepreneur friends have uh, get to sell to. The one thing that they do clearly want to buy is a solution to the truck driver shortage. This is a pants on fire problem for just about every fleet. Yeah. And if we at Starsky were able to solve that problem, we would have no shortage of people who want to work for, with us. And in fact, what I saw was while, while our strategy was to be the fleet, it wasn't, it wasn't to be a typical sort of fleet. We wanted to be the fleet because we wanted to control where the trucks drove and, and what conditions they drove in. Uh, we didn't want to be the fleet because we wanted to pitch Walmart on using us for all their logistics needs or, or pitch local beer distributor that wanted to use us. Really what we wanted to be is more like a, a large mega owner operator who would then 
find distribution through the 18,000 or so freight brokerages that are operating in the U.S. today. So while we, while we weren't selling robots to bigger trucking fleets, we did have arrangement agreements with something like 25 brokerages, including the brokerage arms of a number of bigger traditional fleets, that then kept our trucks full of freight and kept our autonomous and regular trucks moving for revenue. So then Starsky becomes uh, a standalone motor carrier, uh, just doesn't have any drivers. Yep. Is, is that the business uh, model? I, I'd, I'd say the business model was very much like being a particularly picky uh, owner-operator or fleet driver. So an owner-operator who might say, I'm only willing to drive on these roads. I'm only willing to go to these distribution centers that have good connectivity. Sure. I'm only willing, I, I'm going to pull over every time it starts snowing. You know, that might not be the best owner-operator, but it makes for a pretty good autonomous truck. Actually, a pretty sensible business model, too. Um, I, w- I was going to ask you, and it doesn't really matter now, mm-hmm. but um, the American Trucking Association, you know, they, they talk about the driver shortage all the time and how severe it's getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the latest numbers I saw were something like 160,000 uh, on-highway drivers short by 2027, 20, 2028. And I was wondering how in the mm-hmm. heck you're going to produce 160,000 autonomous trucks in that period of time, yeah. eight years, and, and solve the driver shortage. Well, clearly that's not what you had in mind. Well, I mean, if we any any amount of the driver shortage that we met would be a smaller overall driver shortage. Sure. That in, in time, these trucks should be able to drive roughly two and a half times as many hours per per month as a traditional human driver. So that for that hundred seventy thousand number, we'd really only need somewhere around sixty or seventy thousand autonomous trucks to to meet that demand. Yeah. Well, that, that model and sort of makes sense. if I had a 70,000 truck fleet that was driving something like 20,000 miles a month, you know, that'd be a pretty lucrative business. <laughs> yes, it would. Except uh, when you were talking to me, uh, actually, you mentioned it in the, uh, in the medium column and then and again in an email, talking about the margins that are out there for trucking. Mm-hmm. I think yep. you probably went into this with uh, higher than normal expectations for what you might have made had you been able to pull this off? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to say that was a mistake, but what happened there? If that, w- that yeah. wasn't very realistic. So, you know, I think, I think it is. Uh, there's a, so just about every trucking company is entirely focused on how do we hire more drivers and how do we retain our drivers better? There's a, there's a lot of other optimizations that, that fleets aren't really able to do because they might have some lofty idea of a new initiative and then they lose three hours of their day because a dr- two drivers are having an issue and are being particularly difficult to deal with during that issue. It's really, it's really hard for the trucking industry to, to see a lot of the technical improvements that a lot of the rest of the economy has seen. Like, for example... It's, it's not uncommon for a trucking company to spend 20 to 10 to 20% of its gross on, on administering the overall fleet. Whereas that's, that's Uber's entire take and Uber's able to be profitable. And honestly, if Uber wasn't investing in all these other pie in the sky types of things, Uber would be incredibly profitable on a per truck basis vis-a-vis a traditional trucking business. Just by automating things like dispatch, uh, collecting bills, collecting payments, 
all, uh, all of those are things that trucking companies use a lot of manpower to do, which you could easily automate. Yeah. Yeah. So our bet was if you, if you had a relatively unlimited number of drivers, you could then do things that, that traditional trucking companies can't do. So for example, if your entire fleet is driving on one lane, and you, your truck drivers no longer need to take bathroom breaks. They no longer run out of hours. They no longer need to have lunch. You can concentrate all of your fuel purchasing at a single truck stop along that lane. And if you concentrated all that purchasing, you'd pretty easily get uh, almost entirely free, like the, the cheapest fuel possible. You can drive a pretty good discount. Who, yep. You can drive a pretty good discount. Now, what's what's also interesting is a you know dedicated capacity is a premium product in regular economic times vis-a-vis a spot market rates. The um, team trucking is also a, a premium product in in most times re- regular to uh, a single driver. Those are two things that autonomous trucks can do fairly naturally. It isn't incredibly hard for our autonomous trucks to be driving 16 to 20 hours a day. It isn't, you know, our autonomous trucks aren't exactly going to quit and go join the competitor's fleet. So if I tell you that I'm going to have 10 trucks for you tomorrow, I'm going to have 10 trucks for you tomorrow. Which means that, you know, while much of our initial modeling was based off of a $2 rate per mile, which market realities turned into $1.70, $1.60, $1.80 per mile, we thought in that two-year time frame, we might be able to get $253 per mile, which would mean a very healthy profit margin for a, for a trucking business that, that sells as quickly as we make trucks available. Well, if there's one upside to the driver shortage, it's that it tightens capacity. And I think fleets actually kind of like that. Uh, when it comes time to start bidding up uh, contract rates and spot rates, if uh, if you're the guy with a truck where they, when someone needs it, they're going to pay for it. But if you're making yep. it widely available like this, what happens to that market demand that uh, that drives prices? Well, the, I mean, our our projections were that with something like fifteen thousand autonomous trucks, we'd be making ten billion dollars a year. So we'd be a very big company before we started eating into the shortage in any meaningful way. Yeah. So by the time that shortage went away and trucks became more widely uh, available. We'd be making hundreds of billions of dollars a year, which, at which point I wouldn't be so stressed about what happens to the rest of the market. <laughs> I'm sure you wouldn't be, yeah. We, we could carry this conversation on for a great deal longer, but we are sort of running short on time here. Can you kind of sum up uh, where you think the market is right now uh, and where it might be going in, say, five to ten years? Yeah. So, I mean, I think at a, at a high level, the the autonomous industry right now is is struggling to meet the very high expectations that it set for itself over the last decade. And what we're going to see on the autonomous side is a washout of a bunch of a bunch of the companies that that frankly aren't making enough progress. That being said, there are very real business models for autonomous trucks and and those business models some some of those improvements are going to happen to trucking anyway, right? It it doesn't make sense to have full-time payroll people in, a, in an age in the age that we live in. A lot of those technologies can quickly be carried over. I think more VC interest, more more tech entrepreneur interest has gone into trucking in the last two years than has ever gone into it before. So I think we're going to see a lot of other technologies come over to the trucking industry. But at a high level, 
when when this industry comes back around, when people start taking the approach that we were taking at Starsky, you're going to see a very quick, rapid change in the overall industry because it's an industry that is poised and ripe for disruption. Yeah, and we we seem to be getting disrupted a lot these days, whether it's driver shortages or battery electric vehicles or hydrogen fuel cells yep. or autonomous trucks, for heaven's sakes. Uh, yeah, there's no shortage of uh, upheaval in this business. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I think uh, the, the life of a trucking executive is one where hard things are happening all the time. So it's sometimes hard to uh, take a look back and, and see the forest for the trees. But the forest is one of disruption. So what are your plans for the immediate future? You're unemployed now. <laughs> uh, where do we go from here? <laughs> so I'm in the process of figuring that out. I'm currently in the process of uh, helping out on a part-time basis with a company called WeFunder. And what WeFunder is, is, is it's a platform that allows people to make relatively small investments in startups and small businesses that they love. And WeFunder is having this really impactful initiative right now where they're empowering communities to, to lend money to the small businesses that they love to keep them afloat during the, the COVID recession, which is, a, which is a program you can learn more about at wefunder.com slash loans. So that's, what I'm, that's my part-time day job right now while I figure out what my next big thing is. Well, thanks for sharing all that with us, Stefan. I sure appreciate it and uh, wish you the best of luck. Absolutely, Jim. Thanks so much for having me on today. HTT Talks Trucking was brought to you by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, an intimate fleet networking event that takes place November 16th, 17th, and 18th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to learn what HDTX can do for you and your fleet. While Starsky Robotics may have come to the end of the line, Stefan Steltz Oxmacher still has high hopes for supervised machine learning and autonomous transportation. There are lessons to be learned from the company's demise that maybe other AI developers and the trucking industry can learn from. Make some time to read Stefan's assessment of why the company failed. It's called The End of Starsky Robotics and it's on Forbes.com. You'll find a link to that essay in the podcast description. And thanks for making our first two seasons so successful. We've had some fantastic guests on the podcast so far and we've got more great guests and interesting stories coming your way in season three. We'll hear from the National Transportation Safety Board on why it thinks we need to mandate sleep apnea screening for truck drivers. We'll hear from NACFI's Mike Roth on the future of fuel economy. And we'll meet HTT's 2020 fleet innovators. HTT Talks Trucking is produced by Deb Lockridge, recording and audio production by Jim Park. Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine is published by Bobbitt Business Media. I'm Jim Park. Thanks for listening. 